You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe. And sometimes things just resonate when set next to each other. Last week's episode and this week's are doing exactly that. And once you've heard the both of them, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about. I have a feeling as well that a thank you is overdue from last week's show to Larry Porges, who got the ball rolling in no small way, and to Moscow London on Twitter, who fanned the flames. Nico Epstein of Artuna was instrumental in getting things going this week as well. And by the way, you can read my guest Ava Max's account of the show on Artuna. Uh, get to artuna.com and dig out the best kept secrets. Finale Benuri Gallery Museum is the name of that link. I don't often have to do this, but there is some material in this episode that, if it were heard by the younger ear, might provoke questions. It would be uh, pretty hard to answer without causing upset so just a warning that things turn particularly dark around uh, about the midway point on a warmer and cuddlier note hello to twitter users donna Deeble, blonde girlfriend amy bjorkland and sherbet some beautiful thoughts from uh, most of you i really appreciate those amy who's a keen listener in the u.s wants to know whether uh, she doesn't have itunes there's another platform that people would recommend and it made me wonder what you're listening to this show on there is Acast, of course which we use on the website and on which you can look at various illustrative material of each episode but what is your podcast platform of choice it would be interesting to know in particular what would you suggest amy should use at sherbert is very keen to hear a history of the london taxi and its cabbies that sounds like a superb idea to me and listener if you know of somebody who might be able to provide exactly that do drop me a line or just uh, tweet to say hello at Londonist sound is the twitter handle you need or you can find me at n quentin wolf uh, 10 bonus points to you if you can guess the correct answer to this one in the 1930s whereabouts in london do you think an abedonian farmer regularly grazed his sheep hey baby let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound you ain't never seen the light before just a song through from your front West London, surrounded by echoey space and walls and pictures which reflect sound just beautifully, so you'll hear us coming back at ourselves. Us, in this case, being Ava Mack, who is a writer for Artuna, and Katie Harris, the learning manager at the Benuri. G'day. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. We've been trying to find out some interesting facts about the uh, the area. I should say everybody here is, is new, or new in job, so this could be a learning experience for everybody. We are uh, at the Benuri, and interesting facts about the area around the Benuri. What have we dug up, Ava? <laughs> um, that Slashy Gallery used to be here. Yeah, in 1985, it was on this very road. Do we know where... No. We don't. <laughs> Somewhere in the vicinity. And the vicinity is affluent. Um, I think so. I think some records for house prices around this area. Is it, did I hear it's the third most affluent place in the country or something? Let's go with that claim. Let's do it. <laughs> in the post-fact era, this is, uh, this is good information. We are here to, uh, of course, talk about the work of the Ben Uri and also to look at the collections that we can see on here. If you want to come down and have a look at what's here, you need to be fast because we are recording at a time of changeover. We're just at the tail end of one exhibition and the start of another and we'll talk some more about what we can see here. Actually, it ties in rather well with other things we've been talking about on the podcast recently. Artuna, 
though, is probably a good place to start. Ava, tell us more. So Artino is a contemporary art platform that tries to engage collectors and bring contemporary art from all over the world to London. But what is interesting is that it doesn't have a physical space, so it exists online. Um, and there's a magazine and there's interviews with artists and there is online art curations founded by Eugenio Ray Ribodengo in 2013. He comes from an Italian family of collectors and he came to London thinking that he was going to do things differently to... Um, the more traditional contemporary art galleries in Mayfair that are all very, I guess, fancy and um, maybe a bit intimidating. So Artuna tries to open up and bring contemporary art and what's going on with that to a collector's public. Now, is this just a case of slapping the pictures up online or is there a little <laughs> more to it than that? So they definitely also put art up in physical spaces, but... I guess in a very agile way, can choose where to go, can dig out local spaces in South London. For example, they did a project called Studio Escape where they engaged with South London artists and um, had them do tours of their studio and then bring all the works together in an exhibition that was physically mounted. Equally now, they're in um, New York and there's going to be a show there in Chelsea in a gallery that will be in a physical space as well, but it, it's always complemented by the online curation. Oh, and I'm with you. So, th- so this is uh, the next generation. It used to be, didn't it, maybe 10 years ago, that if you were a gallery, you'd have your name and address online and a little notice saying what was being exhibited, and that was about all you'd do. And this sounds like a, a better interface. Well, yeah, it's definitely trying to move towards finding new, new models for, for contemporary art in the 21st century. Katie Harris, you are... New in post. You've been here a month. Yes, about a month, yes. Uh, How's it going so far? (laughs) Yeah, it's good. Busy, very busy. I'm enjoying it a lot, though. There's so much going on here that the learning programme is so expansive, like the schools, visits, wellbeing programme, online resources. There's just so much to do, as well as exhibitions. So it's always exciting. There's something about the size and the space that we should probably tackle in connection with that, really, because you, you're coming from a much bigger museum situation in your, your previous work, and this place is about the size of a shop unit yeah. here on Boundary <laughs> Road. On the one hand, it must be a bit of a culture shock coming to a, a very different sort of environment, I presume. On the other hand, it sounds like there's a hell of a lot going on. Yeah, well, they, the space is... Uh, challenging. <laughs> we have obviously in our collection, we've got a we've got a basically a national collection. There's over 1,300 works, but which I should say is not obvious from the modest <laughs> presentation no, no, of, no, on no. the uh, the outside of the building <laughs> yeah. and indeed the, the the slender interior. Yeah, we've got. Um, I mean, there's obviously lots of it's in storage. We can't have it all out on display, which is such a shame because there's such a wealth of artist work that we could display and we just recently had our centenary which was Christie's and Somerset House we're able to display so much more of the works and you know that was a great opportunity to really get some support going and engagement because we can't have it all on display at the same time here in the gallery which is which is a shame which is why we're looking and we need support for um, a larger location in central London so that we can make our collection as accessible as possible to the widest possible audience. We were in the delicious situation earlier on of debating about who or what Ben Yuri was. And uh, Ava, you know the answer. <laughs> so I think we established that a Jewish emigre artist or art enthusiast from Eastern Europe came to London in the early 20th century and established an art society 
for um, the kind of outsider community in the Jewish ghetto in Whitechapel. Yeah. And then from there, it's built, and obviously, a hundred years on, there's thirty hundred works that. Did, did you say outsider art? Um, I guess outsider art, emigre art. So the whole collection is made up of artists who, I guess, were displaced and went somewhere else. Obviously, a Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. And London is, I guess, such a great place for displaying that kind of collection. And yeah. But um, in terms of digital resources, you, the whole Benyuri collection is is uh, accessible online, isn't it? I don't know whether that was for the centenary that that was kind of completed, but I had a look and it looks really impressive to have yeah. all that um, online. Yeah, it's re- and it's great because you can really see clearly which countries they've come from. Yeah. We also have a very large percentage of female uh, artists. We have, you know, such a range of emigre artists here. 35 countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 35 countries, yes. Yeah, so. And all, all Jewish or...? Not all Jewish, no. I mean, it's immigrant communities that are moving to the to London or moving across different countries. So we we we're basically a platform um, for anyone that wants to link to migration. I mean, our identity and migration are the themes that run through everything we do. Uh, right. So when when I was asking about outsider art, I was thinking of that school of art of people who have not been educated in art, mm. and they produce. Oh, but okay. but no, we're talking about people who come from outside somewhere and yeah. have to deal with London as foreigners. Yeah, and I, and I think you can see that in our current exhibition, actually, that these photographs that we're going to talk about are actually, it's through the eyes of someone who's migrated to a country, so or to a city, uh, like Wolf Sosicki, who's come to London from Vienna, and it's what they perceive, which other people just can't, who are, who are living there, who are permanent residents. Was this exhibition in place when you arrived? It was, yes. Okay, so you, you, you walk through the door, you spend a little time with it. As we know, when you spend time with any collection of art or music, the things that jump out at you early on aren't necessarily the ones that have the most profound effect on you. They're not necessarily the ones you go back to. It's true. Uh, which pieces here are the ones that have grown on you? Um, for me, there's a photograph by Dorothy Bum, and she's... Uh, taking this photo of two small children, a boy and a girl. And initially, I suppose, it's it's one that you look at and you it's quite curious because the children are looking off into the distance. And when you start to look a bit closely at it, you can see just how closely Dorothy's managed to get. And we were having this discussion earlier about how, as a female photographer, she's able to be very inconspicuous um, as opposed to, you know perhaps the, the men in the, the, the male photographers, she's able to get that closeness and they, they don't notice her. She's inconspicuous to, the, to her completely. And when you look for more detail, you can see the little boy is holding on to her, uh, the little girl's shoulder, grabbing her cardigan. And there's a sense of protection, but not from the photographer, from something that's off frame and that's what's quite curious is that you then want to know what's going on off frame and she's captured that moment beautifully well, that's a montmartre and can, can we guess what he's got in the bottle there it's got one of those gross style tops yeah. on it but that doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean like a huge uh, bottle of beer but i'm sure i'm sure it wasn't you think he's out on the town <laughs> yeah um but dorothy's uh, photography was taking place in paris and yeah it's it's quite it's quite an interesting one of i think for me what about Ava? Your first experience of this collection is as a what a reviewer or yeah. So I I review the exhibitions on a different kind of lesser known contemporary art or modern art spaces in London, and I very much come in and have a look and 
presume that the people that I, I write for are, are going to be surprised as well by what they see, and so I definitely try to kind of come at it with a fresh perspective. So which piece on this level would you suggest would hold the most surprise? I think the, the Wolfsuchowski's pictures of London, most of which are of Charing Cross Road, are very really stand out to me because I'm... Um, I'm not originally a Londoner, but I guess most people that come to London very quickly feel that they're part of London because, I mean, everyone comes from everywhere and it's those kind of fresh eyes looking at Charing Cross Road, for example, the milkman here pushing his little cart along in 1930s, 1930s London, obviously an area that is now completely different, but it really captures um, the spirit of the time. It's obviously raining. I think in his photographs there's a real sense of admiration of the kind of the local trade that took place on that road and the, um, I don't know, the daily grind, but very, very affectionate photographs, I think. And they're incredibly sharp as well, aren't they? You forget, because you see so many studio shots of the time, you forget that street photography is possible and to get these uh, sort of fly-on-the-wall type shots. In, in the one in front of us here, we've got the milkman with his cart. He's handing out the weekly milk bill to somebody who's got a fox stole and a, a piper hat. A lot of these shots are, especially for Wolf Sushitsky, they really evoke a, a sense of narrative, don't they? And he was a, a cameraman for lots of famous pictures later in his life. And I think he's... How old is he now? He's Well, he'll be, if he doesn't mind me saying, 104. I should uh, think he'd be delighted. <laughs> uh, in August. I mean, all of the photographers are, are still current and they are still some of them are still taking photos. But Wolf is, um, you know, born in 1912. He's lived through two world wars and his photographs as well are you know time capsules in themselves they mm-hmm. really reflect that period and what was going on and all the changes that were happening that bus on Cambridge Circus I guess that bus still you know looks like it like it does now it's not that that yeah. different there's something that makes me want to weep here though because 1936 37 are the dates on most of these pictures and of course we know what's yeah, uh, just yeah. round the corner for London and downstairs I think we're going to see something of that yes and that's what's that's what's great about them is that we we know the timeline we know what's going to happen but these are you know reflecting just those pre-moments before war started and they're great for working with the children that come in family visits because you can really you know show mm-hmm. show them how different life was mm-hmm. um, and we have a we do have a current actually street photography exhibition uh, sorry competition going on um, so we're encouraging young people to actually take inspiration from these and get involved and do their own London sites and see what they can find. So has Wolf been in here? Uh, yes, he has, and hopefully he will be in again. But um, yeah, they've all they've all popped in. I think possibly Neil Libet might not have. But yeah. <laughs> what did he make of the exhibition? Do we know? I know. I think they were all very pleased, but I. I wasn't there, but I'm sure they were all very pleased. I'm sure they would say if they weren't as well. <laughs> it's interesting. I wonder if you can imagine what it would be like to have your work still being displayed and talked about and used as an exemplum of something 50, 60, 70, 80 years on. Yeah, we do have a converse- in conversation with Dorothy Bone coming up on the 4th of August. It is sold out, unfortunately, um, but you know she will be discussing her work and it's, it's a privilege that she's able to do that. So, 
you know, might find out some more. You can find out what those yeah. children were looking at. Yeah, and we're going to be recording it, hopefully, so we can upload it to oh, our website. Great. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, should we talk a little bit more about the, the Ben Uri then in terms of its trajectory and its uh, direction now? Where, where's it trying to get to? Where's it coming from? Well, the future... That's everything. <laughs> well, the future is... No, let's, um, let's do the past first. What's it been? What sort of different forms has it taken? Has it always been here? Has it evolved? What, what's been going on? Uh, well, it started off as an art society in uh, near Whitechapel, and it's taken on many different changes. At one point, um, they were based in Soho in Dean Street. It's nearly faced closure uh, before moving to St John's. And it's changed in terms of, um, I suppose... What it collects, I mean, the, originally we were focusing on Jewish artists, but it's, um, it's evolving much more to reflect all artists that have migrated, and that's really where we're going. We want to be sort of, we are the, if you like, <laughs> the uh, only specialist art museum in Europe addressing... Oh, that was, this is very smoothly done. Just, I don't think anybody's going to spot the joy in that. Addressing our uh, universal and ever more central issues of identity and migration, which obviously are very, very... <laughs> <laughs> topical subjects, particularly in the current climate. So yeah, very much so. It's, um, yeah, I'm very proud to work for a museum that actually focuses on those three mm-hmm. themes and gives a platform for those for different communities. It might be worth nailing that down a little bit. We'll talk about the future of the Ben Uri as we go. The immigration debate hasn't reflected a particularly positive general view amongst people, particularly outside of London. The majority view, I think, could be seen as anti-immigration whether you consider that viewpoint to be based on uh, rational concerns or uh, various phobias. Mm-hmm. What are you doing here to uh, deal with those sorts of issues? Um, well, we're, we're just carrying on, really. I mean, we're just promoting as much as possible, um, working in the community with, for example, we had there was an estate across uh, the Innsworth and Alexander estate across the road. We set up community partnerships so that you know, local communities know that Ben Uri is very much an accessible collection that is promoting our identity and migration and that these issues are very important and regardless of political or uh, changes that are going on around us, that's our mission, that's our view. We want to be, you know, accessible to all and, you know, promote those themes. I think especially for London, the art scene is so international and there's so many people that come from outside who are really contributing to it. So, like, even Dorothy Bohm, like, she is one of the founders of the Photographer's Gallery, which is in Soho. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in 1971 that got set up. And obviously she comes from outside the UK and has contributed that, and that's now a flourishing institution with a lovely, lovely space. Mm -hmm. And to me it's quite... It's really tragic that there's no that there's no amazing um, museum space for the for the Benyeri collection, and well, I'm sure that in the future it's bound to become um, a reality. Um, but so many other contributions have been, contributions have been made in terms of different collections, like the most important private collection of Italian artists in London, the Esteric Collection. Loads of other galleries bring in. Artists from all over the world, from Iceland at the Barbican now. Raven Row is a teeny tiny gallery in Spitalfields, not far off from where mm-hmm. Ben Uri was founded, and that focuses on artists that haven't really got the recognition or the place to exhibit in the main mainstream galleries um, from all over the world. And I don't know, I think London is very much a place that I, as an art enthusiast, want to be because it's so international and has that appeal. 
Um, and it, it seems as though it would be insane to be involved in the art world and not to support the idea of internationalism. I'm just wondering if there is any genuine friction between the, the issues of immigration and all those sorts of things that we've seen recently, you know, the pulling away of the country to some degree from mm. its European neighbours and the art world, or do, does the art world just carry blithely on and not have any idea of any of that going on? Well, I think in terms of things are definitely made more difficult by by Brexit. And Such as? I work part-time for a company that stages public arts, um, big public art events um, like Lumia London, the light festival that took place in January. And, and the artists that we engage for that are very much, you know, their fees and their materials and their, um, basically their freedom of movement is very important to that occurring. But it, it is very true that the UK is very London-focused and it does benefit London, the fact that there is freedom of movement and perhaps it is important to diversify to the rest of the nation in order for people to get behind that idea of people coming in and contributing and making positive, um, exciting contributions to where they are. And um, Of course, there's, there's places outside of, outside of London, Tate, I guess Liverpool and St Ives. And, but in general, it is London. There's this bubble of, of excitement um, which perhaps you don't experience when you're not, when you're not here. So, well, so in a way, any kind of positivity that you're expressing about the idea of people coming and going is preaching to the choir if it's an, a London audience that's coming to the exhibition. Really, it's outreach to the rest of the country. And that, that's very widely assuming that the rest of the country has some sort of problem with immigration. I know that not everybody does. But they've got a different story to tell in different parts of the country. Well, yeah, but I, well, I think if you... We've always been very... Um, we've always adopted different cultures, different countries, traditions or food or art. We've always enjoyed that cultural exchange, if you like, with um, a wide audience. And I think that's really still reflected some of the issues that were raised regarding immigration. It wasn't keep your art. <laughs> it, you know, there was, there's yeah, always been a, you know, a, a celebration about what other people can show you and what they can bring to your life to enrich it. And, uh, you know, I, I've struggled to find many people that wouldn't enjoy you know a Picasso or a Auerbach you know or a you know a Degas or anything like that coming over here taking <laughs> jobs off our 1935 photographers <laughs> yeah exactly should we head to downstairs and, and look at a much less happy version of London yeah that's a, a nice way to advertise isn't it? <laughs> a little description as we go down by the way because this I've got to say this is a very well kept gallery you would expect a gallery to be well kept very light. I think pastel would be damning the place, but very, very light in tone. But Bright, airy. Uh, somebody off stage is saying accessible and not intimidating. Oh, okay. That's quite right. And uh, through we come into. Well, what would what would this have been before? This this is reminding me of something. I mean, this is just basically a, a two-story townhouse that's yeah, been converted. Yeah, it's, it's basically a house. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. It's got those di- domestic dimensions. I guess we're in the uh, probably in the dining room now. <laughs> Perhaps I don't know. I'm not sure. Around the walls, we have stuff from the sixties. Yeah, that's Neil Libert. So he's the youngest photographer in the show, and he was he born in Manchester? Yes, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So he's a Brit. But he went to New York. Yes. Um, and so this part of the exhibition is about him coming to New York in the 60s and um, viewing the city with, with his kind of foreign eyes. 
Yeah, there's loads of shots of, I guess, what you would expect from fabulous New York yeah. in the 60s. The so. Upper East Side to Harlem and the, tension, the tensions that he encountered. Yeah, he's got a great, I mean, this 42nd Street <laughs> is a great shot. You can see very affluent woman walking by, a man in a car staring at her. But what you look in the background, you can see voodoo woman is showing at the cinema and this sort of composition of the, the woman who's out of focus but quite high up and the man in the car quite low and it's sort of a... Uh, you know, a comment on status and this woman, the voodoo woman, you know, sort of, he's entranced by her walking along. Well, I I don't know. In in fairness, okay, so the chap in the car is wearing dark glasses so he could be looking at anything. In fact, he could be looking at the photographer (laughs) thinking, why is that bloke taking a photograph of me? But what I really like like about this and the picture next to it which shows a, maybe he's a chauffeur, maybe he's one of those guys in the parking lot who opens the door and takes the car. Uh, But he's a bit long in the tooth to be doing that job really. And the photograph's been taken in in the foreground is somebody who's clearly got money. Mm. But they're out of focus and it's actually the guy holding on expectantly to the handle of the car door ready to open it for her who's in focus. He's clearly not expecting that anybody's looking to him. And it's the same with the uh, the woman in the street there. Yeah. It's the person who would ordinarily be focused on who's out of focus. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a theme that he, he does quite a lot in his work. Really nicely juxtaposed in that sense, really nicely hung together. And this, you're right, kind of mysterious affluent woman, not in focus. This is also a very interesting one. So the... It's oh, called Harlem Race one. Riots. Yeah. And what's interesting is that he doesn't really focus on you know the the violence or anything it's really a very simple photograph of a of a a young uh, black boy who's playing it looks like a sort of toy gun or something and the poli- he's standing in front of the police officer and uh, he's holding his real gun who's, yeah who's about to you know grab his mm. truncheon i think and he's you can see the holster with the gun and his uh, holster there but he yeah the focus is the boy's looking at him but the police officer's looking off and it's just quite a, a neat moment that he's captured. It's so poignant right now as well. Mm. When I first saw this, I was like, how, how is this hung here at this time? Yeah. It's kind of incredible because this was taken in 1964. And I, I guess Neil Libert was very almost brave, kind of the way that he would take his shots, mm. not afraid of what the violence might be. He also documented the Brixton riots in, in 1981. So that's what he's known for in the UK for taking those, taking those documentary photographs. I wonder whether they'd fit in here because it seems to me that a subtitle for this collection could be The Gaze, G-A-Z-E. A a lot of this is to do with capturing people People looking looking unawares. Mm. Um, Should we uh, move into the the area here? Uh, This is an eggshell blue room (laughs) dedicated to uh, Dorothy Bone from upstairs. Yeah, so Dorothy Bohm went to Paris and she moved to London or to the UK first, coming from Vienna or... Yeah, East Prussia, now Kaliningrad. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> Where she was trained as a photographer, I think. And then she came to London. Yeah. So we sent by her parents to Sussex. And then trained as a photographer in Manchester and then eventually settled in London. And then when she visited Paris in 1947, she was really struck by the city and its inhabitants. Um, so yeah, we have a range of, uh, we have quite an interesting one here with the local people in the street queuing up at the newsstand. And again, none of them are aware of her presence. They're all looking off. And it's also quite an interesting one in terms of what, what are they looking at? Probably the, the headlines is the only thing they could probably see, the, the large print. Mm. And just, you know, how, how different, how this scene you wouldn't, you wouldn't see today. You know, our, our media sources are so different, the way we gather information. And it's just quite a, an interesting, different generations, different dynamics of people. Because there. now, in, if it was 1947, transformed into the, the 20th century. Oh, breaking <laughs> news someone shared something on facebook yeah. something awful mark is safe you know whatever but honestly yeah. like this is probably how these people were reading about i don't know hor- horrific things that were happening in yeah. 1947 i think a contemporary portrait would show those five people uh, four of them would be looking at their mobile phones exactly. reading the news and the fifth would be running into the street chasing after a pokemon go character <laughs> that yeah. seems that seems appropriate yeah <laughs> Um, it's remarkable actually when we were looking at Libert it struck me that some of his photographs it looked as though the people were sort of half aware in some of the shots of the photographer being there you were kind of conscious of there Mm. being space off stage that the photographer inhabited whereas as you say Mm. Bomb seems to be well, if, if you were to tell me that she was in one of those camouflage shelters covered in fake leaves, mm. I would believe you. It's like nobody's aware that there's anybody else in the street. I wonder how she achieved that. Do we know anything about what she... Well, she must have been here. She, well, yes, she has been in. And, but what, what does she look like? She, Ancient. Agile and actually very, very actively you know, still engaged in photography, still taking photos. Sure, and, but my, my point is, is she a noticeable figure? She's yeah, she's just quite a yeah, inconspicuous lady, really. Inconspicuous. Yeah, I'd right. say so. Well, maybe yeah, that's how she gets you wouldn't, you know, she's not. Yeah, I think in a lot of these, it seems that overall these photographs are less focused on people and much more kind of formally aware of shadows, different ways that the light is falling, um, boulevards along the Seine, bridges. Really, a documentary of the urban fabric of the architecture of Paris in that time. So. In a way, perhaps she didn't have to surprise people in the same way because she was kind of taking people more from a distance. I suppose it must be the case that... Uh, no, am I about to say something stupid here? Yes, probably, but let's give it a go anyway. It seems to me that somebody photographing Paris in the 50s needn't necessarily expect that the viewer of the photographs is f- familiar with what Paris looks like. You know, you can surprise them yeah. with the exoticness of it. Maybe Paris is a bad example, I'm not sure. No, I don't think it is at all. I think definitely for a UK audience, um, in terms of Paris in the war as well, must have been very closed off. And Yeah, you wouldn't have been holidaying there, would you? Well, yeah, and um, what Paris looks like after the war in comparison to what London looks like after the war, you know, there's parallels, and I think that must have been a very kind of pertinent comparison for 
for people to see those shots and be like, okay, this is, you know, a counterpart European city, really not very far away. And I mean, people look at Paris now as well and see what's happening and people compare and contrast and, you know, are the anxieties that um, surround Paris right now, are they relevant in London? And yeah, I think there's always that, that link between the two cities. Well, speaking of our city, I can see through the portal here into... Well, this would have been a bit of a... I'm struck, if this was somebody's house, where did they get the light from? This must have been a very pokey... I, I think it's a lot better no light. Windows, yeah. No windows, yeah. No windows. None of those skylights that look up to the pavement where you can see our people's trousers. We really are in the basement, aren't we? So we're under... under yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, pictures of ruins and damage all around us. This mm-hmm. is... Now, I'm going to throw myself at this person's name. You've said it a few times. I should be able to do this. Wolf Shushitsky. Shushitsky. Sushitsky? Sushitsky? Sorry, Wolf. Uh, well, the most striking image, first of all, yeah. on the left here is St Paul's Cathedral. And it's seen through what looks to be the ruins of a building. We're looking, I think, through a window frame that's just about survived. It looks as though the building around it has pretty much been reduced to rubble. And the panes of glass have all been shattered, and the frame within the uh, opening for the window hangs at a funny angle. Through it, we see St Paul's Cathedral still standing. Yeah, so St Paul's built after, rebuilt after the Great Fire of London, standing tall after what they call the Second Great Fire of London, one of the most destructive episodes in the Blitz in London. Famously, Winston Churchill insisted that St Paul's must be saved at all costs. So um, surrounding buildings were pretty much sacrificed so that all the... Yeah, they made a fire break, didn't they? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm. So this is, this is very much a, a, a tribute shot, which I had never seen before. And we were saying earlier the famous shot of St Paul's standing tall. Um, amongst the smoke. Yeah, it's the dome yeah. kind of appearing out of this fog of, of smoke. And this is just, to me, was an entirely new... Um, image on taken from on the ground through these, uh, I guess, it's steel metal. Yeah, we've got like a frame window. within a frame. Yeah, within, so through this through the grate. Yeah, formally pretty, really interesting as well. The the barriers, the pillars of this of this framework of a window, kind of going along the the pillars of yeah. St Paul's. It's very much protecting it, just yeah. as Churchill yeah. wanted it. Do not, <laughs> do not destroy. Yeah. yeah. Is, is it me? There is a quality to that picture that makes me feel as though that is utterly modern, and I can't quite place it. I mean, there's nothing about the subject that particularly suggests that. There's something about though, the quality of the photograph that seems so contemporary. Maybe, yeah. it's, maybe it's the absence of signifiers of it being a different time that lets you imagine it's now. Yeah. Um, and it looks as though also it's a photograph that you couldn't, you wouldn't probably have wanted released at the time. The sort of victorious shot, I suppose, the miraculous survival picture with the smoke all around, but St Paul's uh, still standing. Mm-hmm. Much more celebratory. This one, yeah. this, this suggests this something else. At what cost, exactly? Mm-hmm. I think the, the the famous image is, you know, very kind of. It's become a bit of a cliche mm. um, whenever uh, an anniversary comes around of the Blitz or of, of um, a Second World War, then that kind of pops up. And this is grounds it more, quite yeah. literally, like from the ground. This is what it looked like after the Blitz. To me, it's amazing. London was destroyed and so much of the, of the buildings that have gone up after the war wouldn't have been there if it hadn't been for the Blitz, um, and especially in the city. Mm. Well, perhaps that brings us on, I'm not sure, Katie, to the picture just to the right here. Yeah, we've got um, got a, a main road, 
and your eye line sort of follows from the bottom all the way to the top and you can see Tower Bridge in the distance but just going along the road you have bombed houses completely destroyed and as your eye follows up houses start to reappear again and in the distance the iconic London that you know even today is still there, still remains. Yeah, there's the monument, there's St Paul's Tower Bridge. But yeah, these these plots in the foreground, yeah. it's like one of the architectural digs on Saturday afternoon TV. Yeah, yeah. Right. A set of low Time walls. team spinning. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I've never seen anything quite like that before. Um, and there's a particular... You can see there's a particular junction where there where the bombing must have stopped or the fire must have... Uh, Peter out. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it reminds me of a, a sort of a game that you know, a yeah, computer game exactly. that people play today. That you can, you know, it's so well mapped out because it's you know gridded, and you can really get a sense of right that part's destroyed, but that's bit still going, still it alive. Used to be organised and orderly, yeah. and now it's back to square one. Oh, so this is up some. Uh, this says it's the view from St Paul's Cathedral. So that tower. Oh, in the, in the distance, I was mistaken there. So this is from St Paul's Cathedral, so that is the fire break just there. Yes. Um, oh. uh, let's keep going. I'm fascinated by these images. Yeah. Oh, there's the wax. The wax. Yeah, oh, this is... Now, this, is, this has warranted not only a photograph, but also a display cabinet with some documents here. What's this all about? Uh, the picture, I should say, is... It looks like the side of a tube station. It's got that familiar architecture in the arches, but... The banner being shown in this photograph outside the building says, War in Wax, the world's most modern waxworks. The horrors of the German concentration camps, all in lifelike and life-size figures, over a 100 figures. Mm. Yeah, gads, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really shocking to think that this was an acceptable... um, like Madame Tussauds horror show it must have you know it's it's, London dungeon or that kind of it gives that kind of feel of yeah like a tourist attraction yeah Um, and these flyers it's just baffling really children's section um, children's section exactly Warren Rag said a pamphlet advertising um, I guess how kids can learn about the horrors of what was happening at the time. And this is pamphlet, it's 1944-1945. It's a perfect example, I guess, of a photograph bearing witness to something that I guess we can all kind of collectively forget or deny or, I don't know. bit of information here next to the photograph says, Wolf Sushitsky recalls photographing the war in wax in Oxford Street towards the end of the Second World War. Quote, this is the only obscene photograph that I've ever taken. I was too revolted to go in to investigate. End quote. A mere glance at the list of dioramas in the pamphlet below is sufficient to understand Sushitsky's revulsion. They are called things like the sealed wagon, tree hanging, and stamping to death, representing but a sample of the extraordinary waxworks that were displayed. That is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, <laughs> um, words fail me. Mm. I can't. And the and the price as well, you know, that you can you can you can pay extra as well and see <laughs> Churchill and Roosevelt. You know, it's just bizarre that it even existed. And you think about Oxford Street today. I mean, uh, it's hard to even correlate that that would even be there. It's that kind of thing where you wonder when people are in the moment and they hear about these things and it just takes a while for things to sink in. Mm. So the the idea that this is you know informative and 
even interesting or to some extent mm. sensational yeah. five, ten, twenty, however many years later is completely you know dumbfounding the fact that we would do that but I guess there's things that would ha- that happen now where we delve into them and we I don't know show things on television where I guess later you might be like well that was kind of crazy that we that we considered that in that moment the way that we did and it takes a bit of distance to to kind of really see the scale of how horrible the things have been there. Well, I, I sort of felt it went the other way. I mean, I've got a particular museum in my mind that's opened uh, not very long ago, which takes grisly deaths from yesteryear and puts them on display. And I'm not going to give them the publicity. A regular listeners to the show will know exactly what I'm talking about. But the fact that in 1945 there would have been artists knocking together wax models of Holocaust victims seems... Uh, well, I think my tiny brain can't quite cope with the thought there. I'm going to let that uh, percolate for a while, I think, and focus instead on the much more celebratory picture on the right here. And I can't get enough of these sorts of picture. Mm-hmm. VE Day, this is in Coventry Street, Piccadilly Circus, 1945. Right at the middle of it, we have a guy playing an accordion that may itself have been salvaged. It looks like it's just about to fall to pieces, but he's putting together a song. Everyone's clearly mid-verse and they look absolutely exhausted but, yeah. but they've got through it yeah it's a, they're not they're not all happy expressions are they they're actually quite um yeah you're right they look absolutely exhausted i wonder what he's playing maybe it's a, a, a dirge or a lament or something <laughs> it's a big crowd of people and and this one i think is really interesting as well look, looking at trafalgar square from behind the head of one of the lion sculptures big crowd demonstrating in the way that we now see demonstrations, people taking to the streets. But they were actually demonstrating for the opening of a second front against Germany in 1942. So, yeah, really documenting history as it was unfolding. Astonishing. So so this is a crowd of people who are asking for more war, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. I know. The reversal couldn't be more pertinent, really. I mean, when you first look at it, you think it's... VE Day, day or celebration, yeah. but yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, it's a mass group of people wanting more. And there's children and, you know, very young people and soldiers as well and, you know, women and, uh, yeah, it's quite a mix of, of people who are there. It makes me realise that if you thought you had a secure business in the hat trade... How wrong you are. How times have changed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we should bring them back. Hats are great. I think so as well. You need them in this country. <laughs> Actually, hats wear, what non-hat wearers don't realise is that you don't need all the extra layers that you take out with you to deal with all sorts of different weather. Just take a decent hat. It actually does a lot of that work. <laughs> Just the ears, the ears are warm. And <laughs> That's it. One more fabulous hat here. Actually, two three fabulous hats the, the woman wearing that um, I guess what, what would you call it flowery um, oh, like decoration a, yeah sort of a well it's half beret I don't know it's sort of a well, it's off a, the side it's a cake it's a cake <laughs> it's pretty much yeah but she looks very glamorous the fur shawl um, the, even the way she's sort of pointing her toe towards she's aware um, of the photo she's very aware of the photographer and in fact if you compare the feet you know the woman is pointing looking very glamorous but the other the gentleman she's with is getting his shoes shined well so he can do exactly the same thing no doubt um, and it's interesting that those, the two, the, you know, the well-dressed couple
couple are looking at the camera. But the man who is anonymous, we have just his back and know that he's, his only role is to shine this man's shoes, um, is, is you know, hidden to us. We don't see his face. And it's again, it's that uh, caption, that snapshot of status symbol and, and who, who these people are and what they're doing in that moment. Yeah, so the, the division that Suschitsky encountered when he came to London, so this is in 1936, um, I guess is quite similar to what Neil Libert was yeah, documenting exactly. in New York. Very obvious contrast between wealth and, and, um, and social class. Mm. We've started to see a bit of that coming back, haven't we? Well, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe it's I'm just sure it ever went away. <laughs> well, no, no, but the number of, number of homeless people you see on the street is incredible. certainly increasing, for example. I don't know whether it's something that once you know that those numbers are increasing, you start to notice more, but I've felt that since, since I've moved to London, I've been noticing it more and more and more. People that on the street where you... Honestly, they don't look like they've been on the street for very long and they really don't seem... You know, they just look like backpackers who are just going to, you know, go home, like... But, but really, uh, young people and more and more in London, this photograph taken in the wake of the Wall Street crash, mm. um, you know, does history repeat itself? Does it like, come back in a different way? Um, I really hope this is not the 21st century's <laughs> 30s with, with 40s to follow. Yeah. That, would not be, that would not be good. No, but the fashion will be good. Fashion will be excellent. Well, what is lovely about this photograph is that the fashion has obviously changed so much, but the, in the background, Cambridge Circus, you can still see you know, the, the, bit, the roads, the buildings, they still look very much the same now as they did then. And um, I think that's quite a nice way to sort of think about, you know, all these people are gone and their, their photos of them in that moment are there. But the place, the location, the city is the constant. And that's throughout all of these. Yeah. Yeah. Should we end on sheep? Oh. <laughs> I thought you'd, thought you'd never ask. <laughs> end on, on sheep. Oh, yes, we're in Hyde Park. I think yeah. this one is, the to me, looks the most like... It could, this could be today as well. Like. And more broadly, rather than just the date being flexible, this could be any part of Anywhere rural England. The UK, yeah, exactly. And for foreigners, I think the UK, and, and especially outside of London, you know, like it's a garden and the, the landscapes are beautiful. And this to me is very reminiscent. Yeah, maybe Cornwall, like sheep, or I don't know. Um, very, a very romantic picture. I think a very light tone in, in this context of, of other photographs. Yeah. Throughout the 1920s, this is a, a, a London fact, people. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, until the outbreak of the Second World War, the Aberdeen-based shepherd George Donald would bring his flock of sheep down to London to graze in Hyde Park, helping to keep its grass at a manageable length. That makes no sense whatsoever, does it? <laughs> Aberdeen... You have to have your grass at the right length. Well, I don't mind the grass being at the right length, but surely they could have found some sheep that were closer than that. <laughs> they need to be... <laughs> Why would he do that? No, who knows? Who knows? Do you think he kept taking them back and forth? I would hope that they could stay there for quite a long time. You um, think so? And then stubborn the... sheep. Stubborn sheep. <laughs> we demand our grass. Only high park grass for us, yeah. But that sounds like they were on some sort of rotation system. What on earth is going on? I need to find um, out more about this. There must these. be some very comical stories of people <laughs> bumping into sheep or something. Yeah, and then <laughs> why do you think they stopped it during the war? I mean, maybe because people had nicked the sheep or something, but maybe uh, <laughs> maybe blackouts, they'd trip over the sheep? Or yeah, exactly, they'd... unless they were painting them with white paint. <laughs> and... 
<laughs> now then they'd be a target for the bombers. Ah, uh, yes. A moving one as well, so, yeah. <laughs> I heard a wonderful... This is, since we're talking a little bit about bombing London, I heard a wonderful story about uh, somebody during the war. So this is connected with the, uh, the Battle of Britain, and we know that the, the fighters were going over there and the future of the country hinged on the success of our RAF. Mm. And a, a farmer in the country set up a fake landing strip um, so a big field, you know, designed it to look, put a few lights on it. And then every night he would go and get his tractor and he'd pull a fake plane. I think he attached wooden wings or something like that and, and lights. And he'd just drive his tractor up and down to give the impression that this was a working airstrip. Yeah. Um, so he, he ran the risk of being bombed every night yeah. on his tractor. Yeah. There were quite a lot of fake um, military bases, inflatable tanks, you know, planes oh. made of just wood laid out so that from an aerial viewpoint it would, it would just look like we had bases all over and it was quite ingenious the, the, the things that people thought up to fool the, other, the enemy. Well, they, I think they should have kept the sheep for that reason then. No, 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 this, this is Aberdeenshire, you're in the wrong place. Luftwaffe. <laughs> but the children that come and visit absolutely love this particular photograph because it's just that surprise of oh, Hyde Park, my local park or a park I've been to and it had sheep on it, you know, and that's, that's one of the beauties of using that collection and getting that, that engagement. So, um, in, in uh, gradually drawing towards the end of the show, I guess, your work as learning and engagement and education yeah. on, on that side of things, are you dealing mainly with small people? Um, well, it's primary and secondary. Children, I mean, not just small people. <laughs> it's all ages. It's primary and secondary um, school sessions that we run and digital resources we create for them. But we also have an extensive adult learning program. Um, so we invite people to come along for our life drawing classes, iPad art. We also set up community partnerships. And we have a fantastic wellbeing program, which works with uh, local residential homes and yeah, looks into, you know, further research and what we can do to improve people's lives through art basically. So unfortunately Unseen will finish on the 28th of August but we will have a new exhibition uh, which will be opening in September. It's called Yalta 1945 and it's by Vitaly Komar and Alexander Melamid. It's, a, it's an installation, there's going to be like 31 different panels. The two of them combined created something called Sots Arts. So imagine pop art which was a celebration of commercialism. This is actually a criticism of uh, Soviet propaganda and ideology that was prominent during their time in Russia. And they moved to America and they were never officially considered uh, to, well, never officially allowed to showcase their art in galleries in Russia. It was always cafes or wherever they could find a space. And, you know, the, they were basically pushed out you know they weren't allowed to showcase their materials so so is it sort of satirical in tone very much yeah very much satirical um sort of socialist realism it's going to be a really interesting change from unseen mm. but it's definitely worthwhile to come and have a look at um because it's going to be very yeah political we're going political with the with our art and making a statement and i think that's what these two are all about oh, what's on the horizon for art gina um, so Artuna is going to have a show in New York soon and an, an online curation is going up as well. On the website right now is Andy Holden, which is an artist that works with cartoons and the show that will follow will also be about cartoons. So it's about 
um, the influence that the cartoon world has had on contemporary artists and the way yeah, that a lot of cartoons are kind of infiltrating the art world. There's a lot of... The cartoon is very kind of happening right now for, um, for, for lots of different artists who feel that um, blending lower, a lower art with kind of more high art is, um, is, is great for getting people excited about, about contemporary art. So that's going to be in New York and Chelsea in a gallery, physically mounted, but also on, on the website. And of course, you're going to be writing about this exhibition. Yeah, that's that's the plan. That um, this is going to be featured in um, a series called Best Kept Secrets. So there's been twelve so far, and then Ben Muir is definitely going to be a great addition to the series. Very much a collection that is a secret because it doesn't, you know, it's not it doesn't benefit from the space that it really deserves. And um, even though this exhibition shows that it's very worth visiting and and you make great great use of the space that you do have yeah i very much hope that in the future new exposure and new projects will lead to a permanent venue yeah what's the the plan i'd I'd love to i mean if if this were uh, 12 times the size then i'd uh, lap it up it's fantastic you you can help us out you know you can become a friend of benary you can help with fundraising you can just generally spread the word that we're here go on our website www.benary.org.uk and yes facebook social media twitter instagram anything that you can do to just promote us because it would be fantastic to have that permanent venue yeah um, i think people don't know but the campuses you like you were saying like auerbach um uh, soutine chagall george gross just all these kind of names that as an art lover excite me and then to think that they're all stored away in in storage somewhere is is, is sad it yes, is sad. let's we get them on some walls yeah. <laughs> we need to get them out and on display uh, and if you've got a dining room that you don't mind being painted pastel and converted, then I'm, I'm, I'm sure a subsidiary gallery license could be operated. Not really. No, that's that's not meeting with approval. So we've got the Ben Yuri website, and Artuna can be found at no surprises. Artuna.com. <laughs> uh, Ava Mack, Katie Harris, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Katie Harris and Ava Mack. Thanks to to Nico Epstein, Katie Barron and Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.